Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception. I am your hostess, Bex David, and this is the space between the picket lines. This is a place where we talk about all things pro-life, but we come at it from the basis of real science, logic, and provable data. In the last episode, we discussed the infamous one-liner, no uterus, no opinion, and we took a hard look at abortion coercion. Today centers on the empire that is late-term abortions. For those who do not know, late-term abortions are those that occur during the second and third trimesters of a woman's pregnancy. Warning in advance, today's episode is long and brutal, but I guarantee you that the information within is worth knowing. So, thank you very kindly in advance for staying the course and suffering with me. The first thing that you need to know is that in the United States, the Center for Disease Control, otherwise known as the CDC, does not require states to turn over their abortion data. Any information given is strictly voluntary. Additionally, according to Pew Research, as of January 11th, 2023, the two organizations which are primarily responsible for collecting abortion data, the CDC and the Guttmacher Institute, use different methods and publish different figures. Given the differences, it is impossible to report the exact number of late-term abortion facilities or late-term abortions themselves. But what I can tell you is what Pew Research says based off of the information given to it by the CDC and the Guttmacher Institute. So from the top brass, here are things that you need to know about late-term abortions as of the last batch of data that was collected, which would have been in 2020. First, there are roughly 1,603 facilities in the U.S. that provide abortions. This includes 807 clinics, 530 hospitals, and 266 physicians' offices. Second, the median number of yearly abortions, going by the lowest and kindest estimates, is 775,243. And third, 6% of recorded abortions occur during the second trimester, and 1% are performed during the third trimester. To highlight some numbers here, 6% of 775,243 is 46,515. Take that and multiply it out by three years from 2020 to 2023, and you get 139,545. So at least 139,545 innocent infant lives have been lost to second trimester abortions in just the past three years. Doing that same math for the 1% of third trimester abortions, you get 23,259 lives in the past three years alone. So if we go back to our baseline yearly total of 69,774, and we multiply out by the 50 years since Roe v. Wade became law of the land, we're going to get the following far more gruesome number. 3,488,700. Just under 3.5 million. Allow that to sink in for just a second. 50 years, three and a half million individual human children who deserved love and a chance at life, but were instead met with a needle of poison and a sofa clamp that they had no hope of escaping. We could even go one step farther and cross-check these numbers against the ones that I did in a separate episode titled Genocide Numbers and Why They Matter. In that episode, I walked us through 1973, whenever Roe v. Wade became law of the land, all the way to 2022, when it fell. And we figured out exactly how many children total, 
first, second, and third trimester were lost during that time. The number there came out to a staggering 53 million. Now, 7% of 53 million is 3,710,000. Therefore, we know that the numbers check out, and we can even account for the infants who have been saved since Roe versus Wade was dismantled in 2022. And remember that that number, that 3.5 million, is on the lower end because there is not a single state in the entire USA that is required to report all their numbers, let alone to do so correctly and in a fact-checked manner. So three and a half million. What on earth are we supposed to do with that? It seems to me that in order to understand the gravity that is three and a half million, we should answer the following questions. First, what does second trimester development look like? Second, what actually occurs in a second or third trimester abortion? Third, what would drive a doctor into this line of work specifically, as opposed to any other classification of medical practice? And fourth, what are names and stories that you need to know? For the sake of ease, I'm going to answer each question one by one. Thus, we begin with what second trimester development actually looks like. And I believe that this is important because those three and a half million children have earned the right for us to face the reality of the humanity that we chose to extinguish. For answers, I'm going to direct you to four separate sources. First, there's WebMD, a slideshow of fetal development. There, you can see photographic evidence that your child looks very human. It is clear as day that he or she is just as much of a baby as the day that you hold him or her in the delivery room. Second, the Mayo Clinic pregnancy week by week. This details the major landmarks of second trimester development, starting with week 12's obvious human limbs, development of sex organs, and the ability to move around the womb. Third, familydoctor.org, your baby's development, the second trimester. This gives further insight to all of the amazing things that your child is developing and learning well before birth and even directly after the first trimester, or directly out of the first trimester. And finally, I've already done three separate, exhaustive, and incredibly detailed episodes that walk you through every single milestone from conception all the way to delivery. They are called the science of fertilization, stages of fetal development, and proofs of humanity. They discuss everything above and they go into much greater detail beyond. Therefore, with all of that evidence, we can answer question one. The fetus in the womb, even at the very beginning of the second trimester, looks, acts, and is developing as the human being that he or she is. Next up, question two. What actually occurs in a second or third trimester abortion? Now remember, we are talking about three and a half million legal late-term abortions. So this is what that would have looked like in each one of those individual cases. I actually already have an entire episode devoted specifically to answering this question, and not just for second or third, but also for first trimester abortions. It's called What Abortions Do and Their Aftermath. But for the sake of redundancy, I'm going to include more eyewitness testimony here. A quick synopsis on the procedure can be found at abortionprocedures.com. In this case, we're specifically focusing on second, or sorry, on a second trimester abortions. The expert witness is a prior abortionist named Kathy Altman. She has successfully completed more than five hundred second trimester abortions during a career that spanned over 30 years. The following is her abbreviated testimony. A dilation and evacuation abortion, colloquially, colloquially known as a D&E, 
is generally performed between 14 and 22 weeks of pregnancy. A form of sterilized seaweed called laminaria is used to dilate the woman's cervix 24 to 48 hours before the procedure so that a sofa clamp can fit inside the woman's vagina and do its job. On abortion day, the abortionist uses the sofa clamp to tear the baby's arms and legs off of the baby's body. Next come the child's intestines, spine, heart, lungs, and other body parts. This includes finding, grasping, and crushing the baby's head. That is the gruesome reality of a second trimester abortion. It is performed on a human child with no anesthesia and no way for the child to escape being literally ripped apart and their skull being crushed. Now, as for the third trimester, it only gets worse. For this, I'm going to refer you to an excellent YouTube video featuring Dr. Anthony Levantino. If you are unfamiliar, he is an obstetrician slash gynecologist who has performed over 1,200 abortions. The video itself has got kind of a long title. It is Third Trimester Induction Abortion, Injection and Stillbirth. And it goes incredibly in-depth. Again, I'm going to give you the highlights. An induction abortion is performed between 25 weeks and term. The process takes three to four days from start to finish. On day one, the nurse uses an ultrasound to inject a toxin called digoxin directly into the baby's heart, torso, or head. The purpose of this poison shot is to induce fatal cardiac arrest, and it is guaranteed that the baby is going to feel it. On day two, laminaria is inserted to widen the woman's vaginal canal enough to remove the baby parts. And on either day three or four, dependent on the person, the mother goes back to the clinic and attempts to deliver her poisoned and dead child whole. If that does not work, then the procedure becomes a D&E, as we discussed for second-term abortions. And something on this that I think is worth noting, during the time between the injection of the digoxin to kill the child and the day that the mother actually goes in and has the child removed from her, she's carrying her dead child inside of her body. And as a woman who has been pregnant, I can guarantee you she can feel that. And that, my friends, is what we have allowed to happen to three and a half million human infants in this country. Poisoning, brutal dismemberment, and skull crushing. All without anesthesia, and all done intentionally to infants who had nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Ghastly is too kind and too generous of a word. But the worst part is that those deaths built an empire that still exists to this day. An empire of blood money and a total denial of a sworn code of medical ethics. And it all ties back to one man. And I'm about to explain how. On to our third question. What would drive a doctor to enter this line of work as opposed to literally any other medical subspecialty? For the record here, I do not believe that abortionists should get the privilege of calling themselves doctors. I've got an entire episode called The Hippocratic Oath detailing my reasoning behind that. But we must face the reality that they currently are. They are required to receive all the same medical training as any other doctor. They take the same oaths and they learn all the same baseline skills. To become an abortionist, rather than some other specialty, they have to actively seek out a residency in abortion. As proof, I'm going to give you some direct quotes on the subject. The first comes from an AP News article circa April 18, 2022. Quote, U.S. physician education typically includes four years of medical school where students learn the basics of general medicine and hands-on patient care. They graduate with a medical degree that officially makes them doctors. 
Most then spend at least three years in residency programs, where they receive intense on-the-job training and specialty skills. U.S. medical schools require students to complete a clerkship in obstetrics and gynecology, but there is no mandate that it include abortion education. At the postgraduate level, OBGYN residency programs are required by an accrediting group to provide access to abortion training, though residents who object can opt out of performing abortions. So before we get to the next quotes, let me point out something here. PBS published the exact same article, word for word, one day later on their own website. Now keep in mind, AP News and PBS are geared towards entirely different demographics. So these different organizations with different specialties based out of different states and geared toward different groups of people worked to post the exact same article by the same person a day apart. And that article was talking about how tragic it is that you have to actively go seek out an abortion residency. Feels pretty Twilight Zone-esque, if you ask me. But like I said earlier, we are talking about a strategically built undercover empire, so it's not what I would classify as shocking. On to the next few quotes. This one comes from The Atlantic in a June 9th, 2015 article. By abortionist, or it was, it was um, quoting abortionist Paul White out of Philadelphia. And he said, quote, One of the reasons I went to medical school was to become an abortion provider. And coming from a strongly pro-choice family, to use my medical training to increase abortion access in the U.S. I always assumed that my ability to do so was simply a matter of my willingness to perform the procedure. But in seeking out opportunities to learn about abortion, as a medical student and now as a resident in family medicine, I have ended up in Philadelphia, where there are widespread abortion services and where women do not face the same barriers to abortion as they do in Kansas." Unquote. Then from the same article, Emily Garrett, who at the time was a recent graduate of the University of Minnesota Medical School, said, quote, I never would have seen an abortion had I not sought it out. None of the physicians that I worked with during the required obstetrics and gynecology clinical rotation performed abortions in their practice, unquote. She went on to explain to the person who wrote the article that her solution was to get involved in an extracurricular student group that arranged shadowing opportunities at Planned Parenthood. Then there is an NBC News article from March 22nd of 2022, and it says, quote, Increasingly, aspiring obstetricians and gynecologists who want training in abortion procedures are seeking out teaching hospitals and universities that champion that, that training as a vital skill in women's healthcare, creating a crush of qualified applicants for prized spots in Seattle, San Francisco, and New York, according to medical residency directors and students." Unquote. So we're talking about medical professionals who have undergone the education necessary to pick a specialty, and they actively choose to enter the field of abortion, knowing what you and I now know from earlier in this episode and from several prior episodes that I've already done, knowing that that baby is a human, looks, acts, is developing as a human, gives all the hallmarks of being a member of our species who deserves care and help. And also, along the way in training, they are going to realize exactly what they are going to be required to do during second and third trimester abortions. The crushing of the skull, the ripping off of the limbs, the sucking out of all the extraneous pieces of the insides of these little babies. And coming to that realization after doing this research led me to one stark and unshakable thought. I found myself utterly befuddled when trying to process the fact that individuals who had sworn a do-no-harm oath, aka the Hippocratic Oath, could get so twisted along their path that these medical professionals would actively search out residencies where the final result is the purpose purposeful extermination of innocent, helpless, infant human lives 
to the tune of 53 million in the last 50 years alone, including the three and a half million that we are focusing on today. I genuinely could not understand how that could happen to a person. So I started digging. And it turns out, it is multi-layered. Answer number one is money. I know, shocking. Information on these numbers is fairly difficult to find, but a website called Comparably was extremely useful. Comparably, among other things, uses a whole list of criteria to break down the lucrative potential for all sorts of careers. So thanks to its data, we know the following information. Abortionists get paid, on average, $105,461 per year. Quote, the middle 57% of abortion doctors make between $97,766 and $244,932, with the top 86% making $539,448 per year. This number is backed up by the personal testimony of former abortionist Dr. Anthony Levantino, who had an active practice in Albany, New York for eight years. He has spoken ad nauseum about the realities of why someone trained in medicine would voluntarily choose to step into the world of abortion. In his own words from a 2015 live action article, quote, I work nine to five. I'm never bothered at night. I never have to go out on weekends. I earn more money than my obstetrician brethren, and I do not have to face liability. That is a big factor, a huge perk. In my practice, we were averaging between $250 and $500 for an abortion, and it was cash. That is the only time as a doctor that you can say, either pay me up front or I am not going to take care of you. It is totally elective. Either you have the money or you don't, and they get it." Unquote. But don't just take his word for it. A 2005 book titled The Marketing of Evil by David Kupelian includes a chapter on abortion that gives the testimony of several prior providers. One female, named Everett, had this to say, quote, I've seen doctors walk out after three hours work and split $4,500 between them on a Saturday morning, more if you go longer into the day. Of the four clinics I worked in, none of them ever showed that they collected the doctor's money. They collect it separately and they do not show it on any of the records in those clinics. That way the doctors are independent contractors and the clinic does not have to be concerned with their malpractice insurance and does not have to report their income to the IRS." Unquote. Another, named Witten, from the same book and chapter, backed this up. Quote, Every single transaction that we did was cash money. We wouldn't take a check or even a credit card. If you didn't have the money, forget it. It wasn't unusual at all for me to take $10,000 to $15,000 a day to the bank in cash. Unquote. Then there's the testimony of prior clinic owner Carol Everett, given as part of an interview with Live, or Life Institute. Quote, We opened our clinic, and in the first month, we did 45 abortions. The last month that I was there, with two clinics functioning in the Dallas area, we did over 500 abortions a month in that clinic. I was compensated at the rate of $25 per case, plus one-third of the clinics. So you can imagine what my motivation was. I sold abortions. I had made $150,000. I was on target in 1983 to make $260,000. And when we opened our five clinics, I would have taken home about a million dollars a year. I expected to make more than that after we were functioning." Unquote. Going a step further, we get to the nasty, lecherous underbelly. In the words of former abortionist Kathy Altman, in a 2020 piece from USA Today, quote, I began my medical career believing the modern cliches that women must have total control over our bodies, and that it is irresponsible and unethical to bring unwanted children into an overpopulated world. 
During my OBGYN residency in Florida in the late 1970s, I went above and beyond the usual first trimester abortion requirement, and I asked to learn to perform second, trimember, or second trimester dismemberment abortions. Abortions, I soon discovered, can be very profitable. When I got my medical license in Florida in 1978, I moonlighted as an abortionist on the weekends, making more money than I would have made working in the emergency room. I was amazed by the perfect little fingers and toes, but treated fetal remains like any other medical specimen, with no emotion. I even performed abortions while I was pregnant. The difference was clear to me at that time. My baby was wanted, and my patient's babies weren't. I saw no contradiction in that." Unquote. So in answer to our third big question of this episode, which is how does a doctor end up being an abortionist? In short, the answer is this. Massive money, incredible hours, a system built to avoid both responsibility and liability, and the option to turn off your conscience and be named a hero of women's rights in the process. It is a blood empire with virtually no limit on earning potential. Of course doctors are drawn to it. You have to have an incredible backbone and almost immeasurable moral fiber to reject that combination. So all of that testimony leads us to this conclusion. It is not that abortionists, especially second and third trimester abortionists, are unaware that they are taking an innocent human life. It is simply that they have been bribed and brainwashed into believing that mass murder for blood money is completely fine, provided that they've earned the title doctor first and that it's done in the name of women's rights. Now, I know that phrases like mass murder and blood money are incredibly harsh and charged terms. So allow me to explain why they apply as perfect descriptors here, especially since it will be key to answering question four, which is what names and stories do you need to know? First, I'm going to provide to you the actual definition of blood money, as found in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Quote, money obtained at the cost of another's life, unquote. Remember, an abortionist gets paid by the parent of an innocent human baby to willingly and knowingly take that baby's life. It does not get more blood money than that. To further emphasize this point, I referenced the book Blood Money, Getting Rich Off a Woman's Right to Choose. It was written by Carol Everett. She will probably sound familiar because I quoted her earlier about motivations for being an abortionist. To fully understand the gravity of her life and her decision to write this book, let me tell you her quick backstory. She was an incredibly successful abortionist in Texas from 1977 to 1983. She ran four abortion clinics and co-owned two. She was also a victim of abortion coercion. And that's a topic I've actually already devoted the episode, No Uterus, No Opinion, and Abortion Coercion, to. She got pregnant with her third child, and instead of her husband sharing her pregnancy joy, he told her to get an abortion. Then she told a physician friend, and instead of gaining his support in her desire to parent, he offered to perform an illegal abortion and lie to the insurance company to have it paid for. In her words, she was looking for someone to tell her not to have the abortion, but she ran into an abortion salesman. She goes on to say that, quote, this is what happens in our nation today, unquote. In fact, by her own testimony, her abortion launched the wreckage of her marriage and her descent into alcoholism. She wrote Blood Money after having what she described as her come to Jesus moment and walking away from the industry that destroyed her life and her family. And she became a pro-life activist. So to reemphasize, calling abortion blood money is the proper term for it. But what about the other phrase that I used, mass murder? That is a weighty term. No one should ever accuse another person or group of people of mass murder without being entirely certain that that is the proper accusation. So let me tell you how I know that I am right. Again, definitions. 
Before we get into the mass bit, we'll start with murder itself. Merriam-Webster defines it as, quote, to kill a person unlawfully and unjustifiably with premeditated malice and to slaughter mercilessly, unquote. Wikipedia then defines mass murder as, quote, the act of murdering a number of people, typically simultaneously or over a relatively short period of time and in proximity. A mass murder typically occurs in a single location where one or more persons kill several others, unquote. Going one step further, the United States Congress defines mass killings as the killings of three or more persons during an event with no cooling off period between the homicides. And finally, the U.S. Department of Justice defines mass murder as the killing of three or more people at one time and in one location, unquote. So if we're looking at just the facts, can we rightly say that abortionists are mercilessly, unlawfully, and unjustifiably killing people with premeditated malice? And if so, are they killing three or more at one time and in one location? Now we've already established that abortionists are aware that they're killing human beings. But given the brainwashing and the turning of a blind eye that occurs in medical school, I wanted to dig a little deeper. We know scientifically that the entity in a female human's womb during pregnancy is a human baby. For further proof, I will also give you several verbatim quotes from those who used to perform abortions for a living. These come from one of the books I mentioned earlier, The Marketing of Evil. So, first quote from Dr. Anthony Levantino. I will tell you one thing about D and E. You never have to worry about a baby being born alive. I won't describe D&E other than to say that as a doctor, you're sitting there tearing. And I mean tearing. You need a lot of strength to do it. Arms and legs off of babies and putting them in a stack on top of a table. Second from a military MD by the name of David Brewer, who performed these types of abortions for 10 years. Quote, one night a lady delivered and I was able, or I was called, to come and see her because she was uncontrollable. She was going to pieces. She was having a nervous breakdown, screaming and thrashing. I walked in, and here was her little saline abortion baby kicking. It had been born alive, and it was kicking and moving for a little while before it finally died of those terrible burns, because the salt solution gets into the lungs and burns the lungs too." Unquote. Third, once again from David Brewer, regarding his aha moment. Quote, I remember an experience as a resident on a hysterotomy, which is a late-term abortion de uh, delivered by cesarean section. I remember seeing the baby move underneath the sack of membranes as the cesarean inc incision was made, before the doctor broke the water. The thought came to me, my God, that's a person. Then he broke the water. And when he broke the water, it was like I had a pain in my heart. Just like when I saw the first suction abortion. They took that little baby that was making little sounds and moving and kicking. And they set it on the table in a cold stainless steel bowl. And it kicked and moved less and less as time went on. I can remember going over and looking at that baby when we were done with the surgery. And the baby was still alive. You could see the chest was moving and the heart was beating and the baby was, would try to take a little breath like that. And it really hurt inside. And it began to educate me as to what abortion really was. So based on all of that overwhelming evidence, we can rightfully conclude that abortionists are absolutely aware that they are taking a living human and being paid to make that human dead. Ergo, killing a human being. On to the premeditated malice portion. In order to obtain an abortion, one must make an appointment and show up to a specific building where there is a doctor who has been assigned to remove your currently living child from your body. But first, they have to ensure that the child is no longer living. We also know, again through expert testimony, such as the YouTube video by Dr. Anthony Leventino, that to perform a second or third trimester abortion requires having a trained expert use previously purchased medical equipment 
and medical technology to stick poison into the baby's heart and then rip him or her apart and then suction out what's left so that the mom hopefully avoids infection. Doing all of those horrendous things to an innocent child is as pre-planned, unmerciful, and malicious as it gets. As for the legality portion, it does get a bit tricky here. Laws on abortion vary from state to state and from year to year. But in an overarching capacity, we know that abortionists have never been shy about proclaiming that before they were legally allowed to ply their craft, there was an entire underground network. For proof of this, reference the HBO documentary, The Janes. Now, post-Roe, there are a variety of doctors in 2023 who are saying that they will defy the law and perform abortions anyway, which we'll get more into here in just a minute. So yes, abortions, especially second and third trimester abortions, fit the legal definition of murder. Now as to the mass part, we know from their own testimony that these abortionists are performing more than three abortions on the same day in the same place, knowing that their victims are human beings. And a reminder here that the total number of lives lost to date to this horrid practice is three and a half million. Again, that's just focusing on the second and third trimester humans. Now that is a hard reality to face. I have all the respect in the world for those like Dr. Leventino and Carol Everett and Kathy Altman who recognized their crimes, walked away, and actively choose to spend the rest of their lives helping to right the wrong. That takes immense courage and strength. On a side note here, a woman named Abby Johnson, who is another prior abortionist from Texas who has since become pro-life, actually founded an organization called And Then There Were None, with the express purpose of helping those in the abortion industry to escape and turn their lives around. It is an incredible organization that I highly recommend checking out. So we've answered questions one, two, and three. How developed is the baby at the second trimester? What do late-term abortions look like? And what would drive a doctor to this line of work? Even though we have now proven that it is the mass murder of innocent human beings for blood money. Now for the final piece of a grotesque puzzle. The names that you need to know that built this blood empire on the carcasses of three and a half million innocent, helpless, pre-born infants during their second and third trimesters. The following individuals are not a complete list of all of the late-term abortionists in American history. I chose these people because their stories connect some important dots for me, and I think that they will do the same for you. We'll start with George Tiller's life and then his death. Because what he did in life and how he met his death laid the foundation for the empire that we have today. Through Wikipedia, allthatisinteresting.com, and missmagazine.com, we know the following. He was born in Wichita, Kansas on August 8th of 1941 to a father who worked in medicine. He followed in his father's footsteps and attended medical school at the University of Kansas School of Medicine. He then completed his residency at the U.S. Naval Hospital in Pendleton, California before beginning work as a flight surgeon. He planned to become a dermatologist until his father's untimely death in a plane crash in 1970, which brought him back to his father's practice, which he was pressured to take over. That was when he found out that his dad performed abortions out of the clinic. Thus, one tragedy begot another, and through Dr. Tiller Sr.'s death, Dr. Tiller Jr. added abortionist to his resume and vowed to make it his lifelong mission. In his own words, his motivation for performing late-term abortions, which as a reminder, is when a baby looks like a baby and can absolutely feel pain, was wrapped up in two quotes. The first was his slogan, trust women. The second is well encapsulated by an interview he gave to feminist outlet MissMagazine.com in which he said, quote, chromosomal abnormalities make up about 24% of our late-term abortion patients. 
and sometimes the heart, the lung, the intestines, all of this is outside of the body of the fetus. Most places in the United States say that even if you have this kind of a problem, you may not have a termination of pregnancy. What this says is that women are not smart enough and they are not tough enough and they do not love their families enough to make these decisions about their children and their families." Unquote. Allow me to point out a couple of things here. First, notice that 24% and 100% are very different numbers. He did not say that he would only abort if the baby had a 0% chance of survival outside of the womb. He said that in 24% of cases, there was an abnormality that would make life difficult for the child and for the parents. Now call me crazy, but as a parent, when you find out that your outside of the womb child has a severe medical issue, your reaction is not kill the kid. Your reaction is do everything in my power to get my child the very best help that I can and ease his or her pain as much as possible during the process. Second, we've been told in this country to trust the medical experts because they are the experts. So when pregnant women who have no reason to be an expert in medical diagnoses go to medical experts and say, I don't know what is wrong, please help me. And then the doctor says, your fetus has insert terrible problem here, the best and kindest solution is an abortion so that they will not have a lifetime of suffering, it's going to do two things. The medical expert has now removed the child's humanity and permeated a scared woman's mind with the idea that killing her child is not just an option, but the correct option. So then the scared, desperate woman reaches out to people like Mr. Tiller, whose entire business is getting them from being scared and desperate to paying for the execution of their child. And since all of these experts have the word doctor in front of their names, then of course these scared, desperate women are going to believe the words that are coming out of their mouths. It is an incredibly manipulative lie to look at a woman who is facing a tough pregnancy and to tell her that it is the smart, tough, and loving thing to do to kill her child rather than be by that child's side come what may. Now, for the record, I've lost a daughter in the womb to miscarriage. I know what it feels like to be told that my daughter did not stand a chance and that there was nothing that I could do to stop it. It's horrendous. There are no words for the pain of being a mother hearing that about the child that you are growing inside of you. But I still gave birth and I buried her with honor because she mattered. So I know what those women must have felt when they contacted George Tiller. The way that he and people like him have manipulated innumerable women who were in my same type of position hurts my heart and sickens my soul. So to be clear, this man made a career out of manipulatively lying to women while having them pay him a lot of money to poison and dismember their pre-born children and he had the audacity to use the motto, trust women, to cover it up. So this man, with this motto, had an abortion career that spanned 40 years. And during that time, three things of note happened. First, he gained national attention as the medical director of women's healthcare services. Now at the time, it was one of only three abortion clinics nationwide which provided late-term abortions. Again, we know that at that point, a baby looks completely human and can absolutely feel pain. Given the fact that his work was specifically focused on late-term, post-viability, pre-born children, and that he made no secret of it, he gained the attention and the ire of a whole variety of pro-life groups. To be completely transparent, this attention did include attacks on both him personally and his practice. And by the way, I do not condone that and I will explain why here in a moment. Second, Mr. Tiller, or I suppose I should say Dr. Tiller, struggled with substance abuse issues which culminated in an arrest, time spent in rehab, supposed rehabilitation, and his eventual service on the Kansas Medical Society's Impaired Physicians Committee. Now don't get me wrong, if he actually kicked his addiction, more power to him. But color me skeptical given everything else. 
Finally, his practice made national headlines in 2007 when he was charged with 19 separate misdemeanors after being accused of consulting with doctors that he was financially affiliated with on abortion cases. Now, Kansas law required two doctors, neither of which could be connected to the doctor performing the abortion, to recommend the procedure. Otherwise, it is a clear conflict of interest because, as we know and have proven today, money motivates. Interestingly, Tiller got acquitted two years later, with all charges dropped just two months before his life ended. Now, Tiller was killed on the morning of May 31st, 2009. Before I tell you what went down, there are a couple of things you need to know. Tiller was shot. The man who shot him was actually in the courtroom when Tiller was found innocent and rightly believed that the justice system had failed. And I say rightly believed because, as we defined earlier, the definition of murder is quite literally the killing of another person without justification or excuse, especially the crime of killing a person with malice aforethought or with recklessness manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. That is exactly what abortion does especially late-term abortions, which a fully trained doctor, such as Tiller, would have absolutely known. Ergo, the justice system failed to convict a known murderer, and Scott Roeder, that's the shooter's name, was there to witness the failure. The last thing you need to know is that Tiller was at a church when Roeder shot him. And not just any church. Tiller was at his church. And he was not just sitting down in a pew trying to get his soul right with God. Instead, he was handing out pamphlets with that day's sermon information. And why was he doing that? Because he served as an usher at the Reformed Lutheran Church of Wichita, Kansas. Before I go farther, in case you are unaware of this fact, in a church setting, the position of usher is counted as privilege, honor, and important responsibility. You have to prove that you are an upstanding member of the community who understands godly precepts and the Ten Commandments, one of which is, notably, Thou shalt not kill, and you must have a history of living according to those doctrines. These attributes are necessary because you are looked upon as a role model to your community. So, given that Dr. Tiller was a proud abortionist, it would follow that his course of life, his course of career, ran diametrically opposed to being an usher. I cannot begin to even describe how much it sickens me to think that this church would allow this man, whose entire career revolved around the outspoken, grisly execution of helpless infants, to serve in such a role. Because that means that they either did not see his line of work as a problem, or that they lacked the backbone to ask him to step down until he got right with God. Either way, that shatters my heart and it would have understandably caused a large amount of fury within Mr. Roeder. So, Mr. Roeder hunts down Mr. Uh, Dr. Tiller at his church and shoots him in the head. Shortly thereafter, Roeder is arrested and charged with one count of first-degree murder and two counts of aggravated assault. The jury spent 40 minutes, 4-0, deliberating, and then gave him life in prison. Now, I know that that is a lot of information to take in all at once, so I'll sum it up in bite-sized format. Tiller was supposed to become a dermatologist, but he ended up becoming an abortionist due to his father's death. Forty years later, Roeder killed Tiller when the justice system failed to convict him. Tiller's death made him a martyr to the abortion advocacy world and the popular media circuit. In fact, to this day, if you Google George Tiller, he's the martyr who trusted women, including having a 10-year anniversary page on Planned Parenthood's website. His death also sparked a documentary titled After Tiller, where we meet four abortionists who revered Tiller and swore to carry on his legacy in his honor. So his death sparked a martyrdom, a movement, and millions of further deaths of entirely innocent, entirely helpless, very real and fully pain-capable human children. And that is why those of us who are entirely pro-life have to defeat the horror that is the blood empire of abortion through legal, non-violent means. That is why we cannot use their own tactics against them. We must speak truth in love no matter what. Because if we get violent, 
It will never accomplish what it is supposed to accomplish. If we get violent, murderers become martyrs. Now, I truly wish that this road ended here. But when you turn someone into a martyr, the mantle must be taken up and carried on. So allow me to tell you about the people who took over and continue the work to this very day. Everything that I am about to tell you comes from the following collection of sources. Archive.pov.org with the subheading of After Tiller, The Center for Reproductive Rights, KETV Newswatch 7, AbortionDocs.org, Live Actions article about Dr. Susan Robinson, the National Right to Life article about Dr. Robinson, drwebmd.com, Operation Rescue's article on Shelley Sella, southwesternwomens.com, Live Action's 2023 article about third trimester abortions, and the Wikipedia page on Hearn. Brace for impact. First to bat is Dr. Leroy Carhart. He was originally a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force, and then he became a full-time abortionist in 1992, when he founded the Abortion and Contraception, Contraception Clinic of Nebraska in Bellevue. It is a family endeavor with his childhood sweetheart and wife of 50 years, Mary Lou Carhart. And I gotta say, the fact that they decided to make it a family endeavor just adds an extra layer of extreme unsettlement to the entire story, at least in my humble opinion. See, Carhart was trained in third trimester abortions by Tiller and was an associate physician at Tiller's Clinic in Wichita, Kansas from 1998 until Tiller's death in 2009. After Tiller's death, Carhart decided to start providing late-term abortions at his own clinic in Nebraska. In 2010, when Nebraska enacted a 20-week abortion ban, Carhart decided to open a clinic in Maryland where he offers care into the current day. Then we get to Dr. Warren Hearn. He is the director of the Boulder Abortion Clinic in Boulder, Colorado. He has been performing abortions full-time in Colorado since 1973. He founded his own private practice in 1975. He began doing third trimester abortions in 1982 and performs them to this very day. He was a founding member of the National Abortion Federation. And finally, he was featured in the 2013 documentary I told you all about earlier, called After Tiller, and he stated in that documentary that he was motivated by Tiller's assassination to become an outspoken third trimester abortionist. Then there's Dr. Susan Robinson. She's a board-certified obstetrician-slash-gynecologist. She started providing abortion care after John Salvi murdered workers at two abortion clinics in Brooklyn, Massachusetts in 1994. She has been providing abortion care exclusively since 2001. She has worked in private abortion clinics and for several Planned Parenthood affiliates. And she has taught abortion care to doctors, nurse practitioners, certified nurse midwives, and physician's assistants. From 2005 to 2009, she worked with and learned from Dr. George Tiller at the Women's Healthcare Services in Wichita. She is now providing late abortion care with Dr. Shelley Sella, working at Southwestern Women's Options in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is owned by Dr. Curtis Boyd and Glenna Halverson Boyd. And finally, we have Dr. Shelley Sella. She is an obstetrician slash gynecologist who worked as a home birth midwife in Santa Cruz, California from 1987 to 1989 prior to becoming licensed as a physician. She performed her first abortion in 1990, and 10 years later, she began, she began providing abortions exclusively. From 2002, to 2009, she was mentored by and worked with Dr. George Tiller in Wichita, Kansas. Then, following Tiller's death, a friend of his named Dr. Curtis Boyd invited Sella and the female we talked about immediately before her, Robinson, to begin offering third trimester abortions at his clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So something to highlight with these individuals. From Carhart to Hearn to Robinson, to Sella, and all of the people connected to them at their clinics. They all began, their story connects, with their training under 
and their friendships with George Tiller. And maybe they, some of them began practicing before him, this is true, but the moral of the story is, and it's said in the documentary as well, the After Tiller documentary, it was his death that made them desire to focus on late-term abortions exclusively in their practices. That was their motivating force. That's what we need to remember. For those of you who are listening and are with me on this, as in you are also fully pro-life in all times and in all circumstances, no matter what, because children deserve the right to be born. We cannot use the tactics that those who would call themselves pro-choice use. We cannot get violent. We cannot get mean. We have got to use legal and loving means. That's how we win this. Because if we get violent, people get motivated to honor murderers. And that's not what I want. And I'm guessing that that is not what you want if you are the same kind of person as me and you have the same sorts of motivations as I do. Now, all of that said, here is where things stand in the current day, as in right now, today, in 2023. Late-term abortions are currently happening in at least six states, and the District of Columbia now permits abortions to be committed with no gestational limitations. That means that at any point from day one of being pregnant all the way to the day that you give birth, you would be able to go in and have an abortion done, which is absolutely insane. And that is as of May 18th of this year. Continuing on, one abortion clinic out of Washington's DC specifically states on its website that quote, if you are 26 weeks or later into your pregnancy, we can still see you regardless of your medical history, background, or fetal indications. We do not require any particular reason to be seen here. If you would like to terminate your pregnancy, we support you in that decision. Another out of Boulder, Maryland, currently states in its brochures and on its website that the business will commit abortions, quote, up to 35 weeks of pregnancy. This particular place was the one founded by Leroy Carhart. And something to remember with these facilities is that the name will change. You know, Partners at Abortion Care, or the Capitalist Women's Group, or the Hope Abortion Facility, or the Lilith Clinic, or the Cedar River Clinic, or the Washington Surgery Clinic Facility, to name just a few but they all have the same clearly stated goal, the purposeful extermination of late-term, pain-capable, fully human infants, as if there were any other kind, but just to drive home the point, pain-capable, fully human infants for any reason that the mother so chooses. Now, as for the Washington Surge Clinic, I'm gonna tell you a true story to highlight just how evil this blood empire is. And the following insights come from a combination of the Washington Surgery Clinic website, the NC Register, CBN News, WebMD, the American Conservative, and something called the AlthaClad Files, where you can actually go today, right now, if you wanted to, to see the pictures of what I'm about to tell you about. And you spell it A-L-T-H-A-C-L-A-D, AlthaClad Files. Enter Cesare Santangelo. He's an abortionist who owns and operates out of the Washington Surgery Clinic. He offers abortions at up to 27 plus weeks of pregnancy. Now, back in 2012, there was a live action undercover investigation that showed Dr. Santangelo admitting that any children accidentally born alive during his abortions would not receive any medical assistance to survive, which goes beyond despicable into actually being illegal under federal law. And that's going to be important. Remember that. He made national news in 2022 when a truck worker whose company was contracted to take care of medical waste for the clinic snuck the remains of 115 aborted children to a pro-life sidewalk counselor named Lauren Handy. Now, then another counselor slash activist from California named A.J. Hurley promptly arrived to help Handy get photographic evidence of what had been done to the children. In his words, quote, You look at these bodies. It felt cold. It felt sterile. It felt dark. There was a sense of abandonment. 
My mind could not separate the depravity of what I was witnessing from the image bearers of God that it happened to. It was pure evil. Something so pure being treated in such a wicked way. I remember leaving the room and just beside myself, thinking, I will never be the same. Everything inside of me is energized to fight this evil. I hope these pictures will break the spell our country is under, unquote. And by the pictures, he's referencing the Althaclad file that I just told you about a moment ago. So let me break this down. 115 infant lives taken unfairly. Five of those infants were late term and were clearly ripped apart limb from limb with crushed skulls. Cesare Santangelo was responsible for all of them, for all of their deaths to be specific. And for anyone to be able to see the carnage and have a chance to know and to care and to be motivated to do something to fix the atrocity, it took a truck worker who was brave enough to get the bodies to people who would bury them with respect and take pictures of the evidence to hopefully make something happen. Now, the most insane part is that the final five were reported to the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department's homicide unit. And the reason for that was because they were past the cutoff limit for when abortions could legally be done. So not only was it unfathomably evil, but it was also against the law. So Handy, the original abortion, no, sorry, the original activist who the truck worker had snuck the bodies to, she had taken them with her to prepare them for a proper burial. And the homicide unit came to her house and they picked up the bodies. Now, despite physician testimony indicating that the children were likely killed beyond the legal limit, the Metropolitan Police Department declared that they would not be commissioning autopsies. Quote, those fetuses were aborted in accordance with DC law, so we're not investigating this incident along those lines. There doesn't seem to be anything criminal in nature about that now, except for how they got into this house. So, here's where things currently stand on that. As of August 24th of this year, aka 2023, the ordeal has become known as the Trial of the Five. The men and women who led the way in burying those infants with dignity and getting their story out to the world are now or at least as of August 24th, were looking at 11 years in federal prison for supposedly violating the FACE Act during a sit-in at the abortion facility after the remains were struggled to them. So they saw an atrocity happening, they got the remains of the children out, they took pictures for photographic evidence, they buried them with honor. And after all of that, they said, okay, maybe if we do a sit-in, maybe we can gain some attention and change things so more children won't be killed, right? And for that, they're facing 11 years in federal prison. And I want you to know their names. Lauren Handy, Will Goodman, John Hinshaw, Heather Edoni, and Herb Garotti. Now, I do not know what the result of the trial was, so it is possible that they did not actually end up facing jail time, but I do know that it was insane that that was even a question to begin with. Also, during the trial, U.S. District Court Judge Colleen Collar Cottley refused to view the video evidence of Mr. Santangelo admitting to breaking federal laws, and she refused to allow the pictures of the five from the Althaclad files to be shown to the jury because she called them, and I kid you not, incendiary. As the pièce de résistance, to the best of my knowledge, Cesare Santangelo is still operating the Washington Surgery Clinic to this day, and still offers the exact same abortions that killed those 115 precious human beings, including the five late-term ones. Absolutely insane. And now, to juxtapose that ending against Hermit Baron Gosnell, a.k.a. America's Biggest Serial Killer. The following information comes from a combination of articles from The Atlantic, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and IMDb. First, there is an excellent 2018 film about his crimes called Gosnell, The Trial of America's Biggest Serial Killer. Second, and vastly more important, is that Mr. Gosnell is currently, as in 
today in jail for life because he was caught performing abortions after Pennsylvania's 24-week cutoff limit and making huge money to do so. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on May 15th of 2013. Now, according to an article from The Atlantic on April 12th of 2013, those who testified on record stated that the grand jury report was among the most horrifying that they had ever read. Quote, This case is about a doctor who killed babies and endangered women. What we mean is that he regularly and illegally delivered live, viable babies in the third trimester of pregnancy, and then murdered these newborns by severing their spinal cords with scissors. The medical practice by which he carried out this business was a filthy fraud in which he overdosed his patients with dangerous drugs, spread venereal diseases among them with infected instruments, perforated their wombs and bowels, and on at least two occasions caused their deaths." Unquote. So, juxtaposing the story of Dr. Santangelo with that of Dr. Gosnell, we've regressed so far as a society in just 10 years, between 2013 and 2023, that now when we catch an abortionist literally red-handed butchering human infants for profit, we've gone from giving him life in prison to letting him go right back to work and villainizing the ones who reported him. If you ask me, that's the definition of insanity personified. So in the face of overwhelming data and evidence, I present to you the following conclusion. America has built a blood empire on the bodies of almost three and a half million second and third trimester human infants, who we allow to be tortured, butchered, and thrown out like so much waste, like it doesn't even matter. And those in charge either claim that it isn't happening at all, or that the percentage is so small that it doesn't matter, and therefore, the carnage is a female's basic human right. Except, of course, the 1.75 million female infants whose lives are claimed by said carnage. How utterly tragic. I leave you with one final note. I wanted to concentrate today's episode on the late-term abortion victims, because so few think about them, and the ones who do tend to justify it because of the small percentage. Well, here's a reminder that the total number of infants lost to abortion is orders of magnitude larger, and their stories also deserve attention. Therefore, I have an entirely separate episode devoted to them. It's called Genocide Numbers and Why They Matter. And when you can stomach it, I would highly recommend giving it a listen, because you will not believe what's contained within. Thank you for staying the course with me today. In the next episode, we're going to debunk the argument, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy, and consent to pregnancy is not consent to giving birth. And between now and then, let me leave you with a happy thought. I challenge you to live as though you are loved and cherished and precious simply because you are alive and our Savior did not create you by accident. Live as though your life has meaning and purpose, and I promise you that it will revolutionize your world in the best way possible. Until next time, let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. Thank you for tuning in, and may God bless you.